chapter 17. Genesis 17. Abram's name was a contradiction, an impossibility. It's actually somewhat ridiculous. Because Abram's name meant exalted father. However, at the age of 85, he had no children. Imagine if you were a Bedouin and your name was Amal. And you and your close friend Alibaba are traveling across the plains. And you come to the Oaks of Mamre and there you meet a man named Abram. And you say, hey, how you doing? It's nice to meet you. I'm Amal. This is my friend Alibaba. And he says, nice to meet you. My name's Abram. Well, your reaction would be, great, where are the kids? And he says, there are no kids. And with a smirk, you say, nice talking to you, and you head on your way. Well, 13 years later, you come back the same way. And as you travel along, you come back to those oaks in Hebron, and you see there's, there's your old friend, Abram, the, the childless exalted father. For that's what Abram means, exalted father. The childless dad. So you go up to him and you say, Abram, how's it going? He goes, oh, no, no. My name's been changed. It's now Abraham, father of a multitude. And you just crack up. Because now this 86-year-old man boasts one 13-year-old. And that's it. Nice to meet you, Daddy-O. So much for the kids. Abram didn't exactly have an auspicious start for being a father of a multitude. But listen to me. That's the way of the Lord. That's the way it is with God the Father. Genesis 17 verse 5, God comes to Abram and says, No longer shall your name be Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. This is the way God functions, the way God works, the way He enjoys to work most. Listen, if your life is kind of a mess, or if you feel like you're a scrawny little 10-pound weakling, or if you feel like you're not very smart, not very wise by the world's estimation, if you kind of feel like an outsider, guess what? You are in the perfect position for God to work in your life. He loves working in that kind of situation. He loves it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul wrote that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. In fact, God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You see, God's way is impossible, it's unbelievable, it's even laughable, it's a way that no man can fathom. We cannot figure him out. Rod Gilmore and I were standing over by the fence yesterday just talking and kind of looking at the barn and trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do with this building and these people. If you had told me back in September of this last year when we had 20 people meeting in the living room in a Bible study that, that we'd be looking for more room than we had in the barn, I wouldn't have believed it. But God is unbelievable. God is the God who takes care of, who gets into the impossible, even the laughable. It shouldn't surprise us. Isaiah 55 verse 8, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As we consider God's higher ways this morning, I want to take just a moment and pray that God will lead us in the Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for just the time of worship this morning, for being here among us, Holy Spirit. We recognize your greatness and your wonder. And Lord, now we recognize our inability to grasp things without your help. We recognize as we open the pages of Scripture a book that is so overwhelming that we need your guidance. And we pray for your wisdom. And we pray this morning, Spirit, that you would be our teacher and our guide and you would show us the things that we need to know today. And that you would increase our faith in your higher ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Genesis 17, we get up to the point where Abram now is Abraham. And as I said before last week, Abram's story is one of many twists and turns. God promises to make Abram a great nation. And 35 years later, as we said, when a child is yet to be born, Sarai, his wife, proposes a more expedient answer involving her handmaid, Hagar. We talked about Hagar last week. And Abram agrees to this process, and it sets into to motion some serious problems. Sarai treats Hagar so badly, she flees into the desert. But God goes and finds her. God goes out to where Hagar is, finds her in the desert, and gently sends her home. But before sending her back, he says, listen, I'm going to take care of you and your boy. And your son's name, you're going to call him Ishmael. God hears. God hears. At that place in the desert, Hagar called it, at this well, the place of the God who really sees. The well of the God who sees. So in this moment, Hagar realizes God sees me, this nothing of a little Egyptian handmaid. And God hears my cry in promising to take care of my boy Ishmael. And so Abram raises his boy. For Ishmael is part Abram, part Hagar, and not part God's plan. Thirteen years pass in complete silence. Thirteen years. Thirteen years. How many years? Thirteen years. Let that sink in for a moment. We read Bible stories about guys like Abraham. And we think, oh, Abraham, he had Nextel's direct connect to God. He just flipped it up and said, Lord, got to talk, and God was there. And every time he wanted to, he just pressed a little button. I got those little Nextel phones, and it's so much fun. I can get anybody anytime who's you know, got the same phone, you press the button, a little bleep, and it's, it's great to annoy people, especially when you know they're somewhere where they don't want to be direct connected. But he, he could, we, we always say this about guys like Abraham. He can direct connect God. He walked with God. He was the father of faith. He was, the, the Bible calls him the friend of God. Abram and God were tight, right? How is it that a tight, close friend of God goes 13 years without a conversation? Nothing. Silence. All the while he's raising Ishmael, who he thinks is going to be the, the promise God's fulfilling. He has this son now, son, Ishmael, my boy. Listen, folks, silence from God is a primary ingredient in faith. It's not just that we endure silence. No, we need the silence. God chooses to be silent. Not to speak out. Not to answer. Not to be there every time we press the button. God, what's up, Lord? 
What about this week? I could use some help down here. God uses silence to develop faith. Michael Card several years ago wrote a song called Could It Be? I love the chorus. He said, Could it be you make your presence known so often by your absence? Could it be that questions tell us more than answers really do? Could it be that you would really rather die than live without us? Could it be the only answer that means anything is you? You see, God wants us to learn something. A language. It's called the lingua franca. The language of faith. That is, folks, the language of heaven. That's the language God wants people to learn. Wants people to speak. Wants people to discover. And it's important to understand this, that the Christian life does not just begin with faith. It doesn't just begin with, Lord, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. It doesn't just begin with saying, I believe, and, and that's it. And bam, you're a Christian, you're in. No more problems, you're on the, the straight and narrow path. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But that's the beginning of faith, not the end. The Christian life doesn't just begin with faith, it depends on faith. It depends on faith development. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. A man by the name of Hudson Taylor, actually is quite famous in missionary circles and missionary history. He was part of the great modern missionary movement. Hudson Taylor was the man who started, he, he pioneered the Inland China Mission and went on there in China to save thousands upon thousands of people for Jesus. But before leaving England to go to China, he had a personal breakthrough in his faith. On June 25, 1865, at the age of 33, James Hudson Taylor came to a great crisis in his life, trying to figure out this language of faith. And on a still Sunday morning at Brighton Beach on England's southern coast, Taylor came to a realization that took his faith up a notch. He wrote, If we are obeying the Lord, now listen to this, if we are obeying the Lord, the responsibility of faith rests with Him, not us. Let me read that again. If we are obeying the Lord, the responsibility of faith rests with Him, not with us. The responsibility to increase faith, to believe more, to know that God is active, to really be able to hear and see Him at work in your life is not your responsibility. Your responsibility and mine is obedience. And the amazing thing is the more obedient you are to the Father, the more He increases your faith. This is the story of Abram, exalted father, become Abraham, father of a multitude. The story of a man who had no faith in the beginning and was coddled into, nurtured into, grown into faith over time. And the more Abram obeyed God, the greater his faith. And the less he obeyed God, or when he took those turns in his life where he stopped obeying, his faith came down. Faith and obedience. Obedience and faith. Folks, faith is the language of heaven. And it is God's responsibility to grow in an obedient child. Faith. Now this morning, I want us in Genesis 17 to plop right down in the middle of a conversation between God and Abram. We looked at part of it on Wednesday night. Abraham and God are talking and God is summing up the entire Abrahamic covenant. Giving him all the ins and outs and the details. And he comes to an interesting point. Verse 15. 
Verse 15 tells us in Genesis 17 that God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarai, by the way, means sharp-tongued cutter. Gentlemen, how would you like to have a wife whose name was Cutter? Or Sharp-tongued? Not sure I'd want to marry into that. But God changes Sarai Cutter to Sarah, which means princess. Now, husbands, can I just give you a little suggestion if you want to increase your marriage happiness? Start calling her princess. They love that. You know, really, you know what's funny? Wednesday night, I shared the same thing. Sarah means cutter and Sarah means princess. And you could have heard in, in the barn, just everybody kind of went, ooh. Oh. It almost made me sick. No, it didn't. <laughs> but he changes her name to princess. Now, verse 16 tells us, I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Wait a minute. How old is Abram here? Look back in verse 1 of chapter 17. Abram was 99 years old. His wife was 89 years old. The princess is going to have a baby at 89. I will bless her and she will become, verse 16, a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He is cracking up. Now listen, listen, this is important. It's not a laugh of disbelief. Abraham's not going, Come on, Lord, give me a break. Go look in the tent. Check her out. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Ten years ago it was enough with Hagar, and now you just, no way. That's not what it was at all. Well, how do we know? Well, flipping your Bibles over to Romans chapter 4. We have said many times that the best commentary of the Old Testament is the New Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament better, you look to the New Testament. And it works both ways. But in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, we get a picture, an understanding, a commentary, if you will, from the Apostle Paul about what was going on here. Listen to his words. Romans 4, 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. God said this in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life, listen, who gives life to the dead and who calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he, that's Abraham, believed. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Paul tells us he believed. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. You could say Sarah's womb was a tomb at this point. Verse 20, yet... With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Back to Genesis 17. Man, this is holy laughter going on here. And not the kind that came out of Toronto. This is holy laughter. Abraham is saying, I'm going to have a son with my wife? You mean, are you serious? 
That is so cool. And he is cracking up. He's overjoyed. He, he's just... I can give you a good example. About seven and a half years ago, seven years, ten months ago, I was on a rafting trip with some college kids at the church I was working at at the time. And we, were, we came to the last stop, gas station there, and I picked up the phone to call home. We didn't have cell phones at the time. And so I called home just to talk to Cheryl because we were going deep into the woods and deep into where the river was, and I wasn't going to be able to talk to her for a while. So I pick up the phone, and how's it going, honorable? Oh, it's going great. Well, good. Everything all right at home? And there's kind of some silence, and I'm going, okay, what's going on here? And she said, I have something I have to tell you. And I said, what's that? I'm pregnant. Now, I'm, I'm being totally honest here. I was so happy. I really was. It took me a long time to get to that point. Because after Hannah was born, for the next about four years, Cheryl every now and then would say, Hey, would you like to, what do you think about having another child? And I was always like, <laughs> The diapers in the hole and going back, I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And she'd bring it up again. What about having another child? And I just kept putting her off and saying, No, I just... I, I, think, I think this is... God has told me this is all we're supposed to have. You know. <laughs> Finally, um, five years later, we watched Father of the Bride 2. Which was a mistake. <laughs> because then Rick starts going, Hey, not a bad idea. Have another one. Have another child. Yeah. And so I start talking to Cheryl. And she goes, oh, No, no. See, God has told me we're done. <laughs> and they do that all the time, guys. Have you noticed that? Husbands, that, that as soon as you, you agree with your wife, then they change their mind on you. I don't understand it. Anyway, it's another sermon for another time. So she calls me on the phone and says, I'm pregnant. And I was overjoyed. You should have seen me. I was in the front of the raft going down the river, river just going, Woohoo! I'm still a man! I'm going to have another child! This is great! And I was so excited. And this is what's going on. 99-year-old Abraham is freaking out. I'm going to really have a boy with Sarah. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all this joyful laughter, it hits him like a ton of bricks. Wait a minute. What about Ishmael? Listen to me, folks. Abraham loved Ishmael. Ishmael was his boy. Not with Sarah, but with Hagar, and he was still Abram's boy, his only boy, his firstborn son. Thirteen years he had walked with his boy. Thirteen years. Gone to all the football games in Hebron. Spent time with Ishmael, his son. And Abram says, look at it, verse 18. Abram said to God, oh, oh that Ishmael might live before you. Abram's laughter turns to lamentation. His smiles turn to sorrow. His happiness to heartache. He stops dead and says, wait a minute. This is wonderful that you want to bless me and give me a son. And remember, God's in the middle of the covenant here. And it hits Abraham. What about Ishmael? What about my firstborn? What about the boy that I know that I put my life into? Any of you who have been parents for any amount of time, you know after you have the first child, you cannot imagine loving a second child as much. You can't until the second child comes along. 
And then you realize you can love them both just as much until the third child comes along and you realize you can love all three of them just as much. And it's an amazing thing. But when you only have the one, when there's just the one child, you think, how could I possibly ever love another little person as much as I love this person here? And that's where Abraham was. Ishmael, my boy, what about him? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In the Hebrew, by the way, this language here that he's using is painfully emphatic. It's almost demanding. No, no, Lord, Ishmael, he's your boy. Let Ishmael be the covenant child. Well, for the first time, this cuts deep. Abraham and Sarai's logical, expedient, culturally relevant choice really hurts. And so how does God respond? Verse 19. But God said, No. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Isaac, by the way, means laughter. Little laughing boy. Abraham, you laughed with joy. That's the name of your boy now. Isaac. Verse 20. As for Ishmael, and this is ominous, these four words, I have heard you. I've heard you, Abraham, and behold, I will bless him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But, but my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. At this season next year. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now remember that Ishmael's name means God hears. And with that, this ominous undertone, God says, I hear you, Abraham. He says, my covenant, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. This is God's way. Remember how we began? God is the God of the impossible, the God of the the unbelievable, the God of the laughable, the God of sometimes the ridiculous by our mind. And he says, no, no, I have a way. And my way is Isaac. However, I heard you, Abraham. I understand what you want. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And I will bless him. And I propose to you this morning that that is not God's way. That was Abraham's way. I'm going to bless Ishmael, but someday, Abraham, your people may wish that I hadn't. You see, back in Genesis 16, God had said that Ishmael would be a tenacious, fighting, wild donkey of a man. And folks, the Arab nations, the prolific Arab nations that that cover the Middle East, are a tenacious, fighting people. It's their history. I'm not slamming anybody. Look at history. Look at what has happened in the Middle East. Look at the people and what they do. They are very colorful. And today they've proven to be an ongoing difficulty for Abraham's covenant seed, haven't they? And I wonder, would things have been different had Abraham not demanded a place for Ishmael? Would things have turned out differently for God's people? So here we come to it. The heart of the matter. This is Abraham's crisis of faith, but it's not just his, it's ours as well. For you see, there is a moment when in each of our lives we come to faith in Jesus Christ. For those who become Christians, we say, I want Jesus as my Lord. Well, I want to follow you. I want to give you my life. Come and take over. We pray the prayer. We give our lives to Him. We commit. We get baptized. We do all the things. And it starts right there. 
But along the way, something gets sidetracked. And we end up in a faith crisis. There was a little phrase that was popular a few years back that I'm still still sure hangs painted in some of your kitchens and bathrooms. It says, bless this mess. Bless this mess. Abraham could have hung that all over his tent. Bless this mess. I know I've made a mess of things, Lord. I know I chose Ishmael as my way. But bless him. Bless him, please. And, and we quote the verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things together to work together for good to those who love God. So God, I've really screwed up my life here. It's a mess. Could you bless it anyway? Could you take the, the, the garbage, the mess that I've made and make it good? Can you make it better, Lord? Forget about the last half of that verse that says, we know that all things God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. His purpose. You see, once you've given your life to Jesus, there are two directions you can go with that. As a person of faith, as a believer, two ways that you can live. You can go your way or you can take the highway. You see, it's, it's flip-flop. The world looks at Christianity and says, Oh, yeah, see, that God of the Christians, He's a my way or the highway kind of a God, right? No, He's not. It's the opposite. He says, Hey, you can go your way, or you can go the highway. It's your call. And folks, I'm telling you this morning, in our lives of faith, it makes all the difference in the world. Abraham, Abraham's prayer is, Let it be Ishmael. Do it my way. Take my decisions, my mess, and, and work that out, God. Think about the Ishmaels in your life. How many do you have? What are they? The things you've chosen that you want God to bless. The path that you've taken that you hope that God will endorse. The business deal, or the relationship, or the financial decision, or the life direction that you've already chosen, and then you take it to the Father. God, bless my mess. Bless this mess. Are you used to praying, let it be Ishmael? Father, grow the seed of my decision. Well, Proverbs 16.25 tells us, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And the Greeks used to say, if the gods want to punish a man, the answer is prayers. God answered Abraham's prayer for Ishmael. He made him a great, mighty, huge nation. And we watch that nation boil and toil in the Middle East today. Maybe, instead of being so directive with the Lord, we do well to be more reflective before the Lord. And instead of Abraham's prayer, let it be Ishmael, do it my way, maybe we should be praying, let it be Isaac. Do it your way. Don't go my path. Father, do it your way. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says something that is hard to hear. Stunning. Almost a turnoff, especially if someone's just on the verge of deciding whether or not they want to become a Christian. Listen to these words. Romans 6, 17. Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, check this out, having been freed from sin, you became a slave to righteousness. What? You mean I gave up my slavery to sin only to become a slave again? That's right. That's right. 
Romans 6.22, Paul goes on and says, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wait a minute, is it free or am I enslaved to it? Yes! It is a free gift of grace from God. The question is, are you giving up your will to the Father or not? Far too many people who claim to be Christians, myself included, stand up and say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go, as long as it's this way. As long as it's the path that I have chosen. Bless my mess, Father. Take it, use it, work it, make it, make it glorify you. And all the while God's saying, I can do that. I can take what you've done and rework it and, and make it better. Oh, sure, I can do that. I can bless your Ishmael. But man, if you'd just trust me, if you would just trust me with the whole Isaac deal, if you would hang on to my plan, it will blow your mind. I will take you places you could not have imagined. I will do things in your life that you never could have dreamed. I will, I will place, place things in your life that are laughable, impossible, unbelievable, and you'll just stand there and go, wow, he's God. And I'm not. The perfect model of this, folks, is Jesus. Let me give you a couple of verses and we'll be done. John chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And listen, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Wait a minute. Isn't Jesus God? Isn't Jesus the one through whom all things were created? Isn't he the master of the universe? Yes. And yet, when Jesus became flesh and blood, he gave it up. Set it aside. And said, I will not go my way on earth. I will only do that which the Father tells me to do. Complete submission. Now, Jesus spoke of being lifted up as the proof of him not acting on his own initiative. Watch and see, Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, you'll know this ain't about me. It's about what the Father wants. And on the night before he was lifted up in that dark garden, Jesus prayed the ultimate prayer of faith. He said, Matthew 26, 39, after falling on his face and praying, he said, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But... Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Not my plan, Father. Your plan. And 15 hours later, Jesus was lifted up. As the Father willed, on a Roman cross. And there Jesus died with the lingua franca on his lips. The language of faith. Mark chapter 15 tells us, verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Well, what was it? What was it that Jesus cried that so impressed the centurion? What were those words of faith that hung on his lips as he died on the cross? Luke tells us in Luke 23:46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you know what he was doing on the cross? He was quoting scripture. That line, it wasn't just a final dramatic way to go out of the world. Jesus was quoting Psalm 31 verse 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Your way, not my way. Not my way, your highway. Lord, I will go wherever you take me, even to the end of the cross. Jesus claimed, he said. So the question is, what do we do? We all have Ishmael's. Things we've already done. Messes we've already made. Decisions where we already are standing in the decision. And we can't go back. So what do we do? Genesis 17.23 I am absolutely amazed at the faith of Abraham. Because after this conversation, God goes up from him and he realizes it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. What does Abraham do? Look at verse 23. It tells us, Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on the very same day, including Ishmael. Well, what does that mean? The circumcision, and we'll talk about this more midweek, was the sign of the covenant. It was the sign of accepting that God had made this covenant promise. But saying, okay, Father, your will, not mine. And Abraham took both his faith and his son Ishmael and circumcised them before the Lord. What do we do? How do we pray when we've already made a mess of things in our lives? Instead of going back to Hagar and birthing another Ishmael, what Abraham did was accept the promise of Isaac. And like Jesus, here's what you do. You speak what the Father teaches you in His Word. Like Jesus, you pray, not as I will, but your will be done, Father. And like Jesus, you commit your spirit into the Father's hands. For either, each of us, it's either my way or the highway. And the question is, which is it going to be for you? Again, folks, you can choose both. The grace of God is great. Give your life to Him. He offers you eternal salvation. It's wonderful to know you've got that security. But once you've made that decision, you can go your way Still believing, stumbling along, doing the best you can, and asking God to bless your mess. Or you can go the highway. And from what I can see, from where I stand, from what the scriptures say, the highway is an absolute blast.